What's up, film fans, and welcome into the Second Day Film Podcast, the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. It is Wednesday, July 17th, 2019, and I am sweating my movie-watching tushy off. More on that in a moment, but I'm your host, Brandon Champion, flying solo once again today. And I gotta tell you, film fans, it is too bleeping hot outside. We're in the 90s. I don't live in Michigan to get this kind of heat. If I wanted heat like this, I'd live in the Caribbean. Or maybe I'd have a ranch in the desert. Or I'd be like Dean and abandoned our little podcast for the balmy, gator-infested swamps of southern Florida. Yell at me if you want, but my God, I cannot wait for fall. Give me the football. Give me the changing leaves. Give me the sweatshirt, uh, attire. Give me my birthday on September 7th. I will accept gifts. I'm sorry. I'm just over it. It's too hot. I don't want 90 degree temperature in the great state of Michigan. This is the Midwest, not the Southwest. Anyway, coming up on today's show, I'm going to review three very highly anticipated films. Uh, They're all very different kinds of films, different genres, um, but, but all I would consider to be pretty huge releases. Uh, for different reasons, so uh, pretty excited about that. Some movies that are getting a lot of chatter right now, and I think you'll enjoy that. Um, Before I get there, side note, uh, Emmy nominations came out this week. Some of our favorite shows on this uh, podcast, Game of Thrones, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Ozark, Chernobyl, This Is Us, all picking up nominations. Riverdale, shockingly, did not. Anyway, I'm not going to go through and discuss all that because I want to get to the movies, but I will post a complete list to Facebook, our Facebook page, which you can like at Second Day Film Podcast, Um, and I also tweeted out a bunch of the nominations on Twitter. You can follow us there at Second Day Film. Um, If you want to listen to old episodes, you can check them out on iTunes and SoundCloud, and please feel free to leave us a rating and a review on both Facebook and iTunes if you enjoy the show. It's very helpful to sort of uh, make us more searchable, so to speak, um, and, you know, allow other film fans the opportunity to find us. So um, help us out by doing that. If you're a first-time listener, we appreciate you. If you're a long-time listener, we really appreciate you. Um, This is our second year doing this. This is episode 35 today, I believe, and of course I'm going solo today because uh, well, I'm going to need to find a new co-host. Evan Dean has, in case you missed it last podcast, he is in Florida now. I referenced it at the top of the show, but he he has moved. I talked to him the other day. He's he's uh, exploring his new city of Fort Myers, checking out the new restaurants, checking out the beaches. Um, so if you're in Florida, you know, look him up, tell him that Riverdale sucks. Uh, one other note before I get to the first movie today, full spoilers ahead for all three of these films I'm going to talk about. As I've said before, it's kind of hard to talk about them uh, without spoilers when you're doing a pod by yourself. Um, Just not enough to talk about if you're dancing around the outskirts of the plot. So, anyways, uh, let's get to it. Speaking of summer, the first film I'm going to talk about is called Midsummer. It's directed by Ari Aster, and this is his follow-up to Hereditary, which... uh, was an extremely creepy, well-done film um, that we, uh, I believe me and Sam reviewed back on the podcast last year. 
Uh, I believe it was like episode 15, 16, somewhere in there. Uh, a lot of parallels to that film here. Obviously, it's the same director. The plot's over at IMDb. A couple travels to Sweden to visit a rural hometown's fabled midsummer festival. What begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. This movie stars uh, Florence Pugh, Jack Rayner, Wilhelm Blomgren, William Jackson Harper, Will Poulter, um, among others. Um, and like I said, yeah, it's, it's Ari Aster. It's a creepy movie. It's a, it's a horror movie, for sure. It's a thriller. Um, it's a mystery, in a, to a certain extent. Um, and I think what this movie does, does most well, similar to Aster's previous film, Hereditary, um, is I wouldn't really call it a scary movie. It's more of a disturbing, unsettling, queasy-feeling movie, where throughout the entire runtime, and this movie does have a long runtime, 2 hours and 27 minutes, you sort of get the feeling of helplessness. You feel like what's actually going on on screen maybe isn't so disturbing for the first part of the movie, but you just have this feeling that something isn't quite right or something is going to go wrong. So um, the movie does a great job sort of setting you up with this feeling of dread. This movie's called Midsummer, so um, in Sweden where this is taking place, there's little to no darkness at all, um, and which is weird for a horror film. I mean, what's the hallmark of horror films throughout time? You know, stormy, dark nights with little light in it to, to scare you. You watch movies in a dark room. This movie takes place in 100% relentless daylight. I'm not, there might be one or two scenes where there's darkness, uh, but I don't think any of them when they're in Sweden there's darkness. It's, it's daylight the whole time. And it's like this ideal, perfect setting in the Swedish countryside. You know, it looks like a dream, but really it's a nightmare. And... Aster and the cinematography team and the production designer and uh, director of photography, they do a fantastic job of making the light seem scary. It's so relentlessly light in this movie that it starts to feel wrong, unnatural. And that's because we eventually find out that there's unnatural things going on in this seemingly ideal Swedish village. Uh, this story is essentially about a deteriorating relationship um, of a woman who doesn't get the emotional support she needs from a man. Florence Pugh's character, she suffers a trauma right at the start of the film uh, when the, her relationship with her boyfriend, uh, played by Jack Rayner, uh, I believe the character's name is Christian, um, is already contemplating breaking up with her. And this tragedy happens, and he decides that he can't break up with her right then because, well, it's, uh, it's clearly a bad time. She's gone through this trauma. He has to be there for her. But he's clearly not emotionally invested. And the way that this film plays out over the course of two hours and 27 minutes, we see that relationship that seems like it might be okay on the surface deteriorate even further because Christian is aloof. He doesn't seem to really care about what's going on. He doesn't seem to really want to talk to uh, Danny, his girlfriend played by Florence Pugh. Um, he's just kind of ignoring her. He's going through the motions. He's not engaged with how she's feeling and the struggle she's going through. 
And as these increasingly disturbing things begin to happen in this Swedish village, the relationship goes in opposite ways and crescendos to the very end where Danny basically is crowned the May Queen of this village and ultimately makes a decision because she's been so hurt by Christian to uh, allow something terrible to happen to him. Um, one of the final scenes, one of the most iconic scenes, I think, from this movie uh, shows Danny screaming and yelling on the floor with the villager women of this commune, and they're all just yelling with her and timing up her, their yells along with Danny, almost to like yell with her, almost like a group of females just crying out for help and, and releasing the frustration of not getting the needed emotional support, the the love and affection that she needed for someone she thought cared about him. It, it's really powerful, and this is sort of juxtap juxtaposed with Christian having sex with a with um, one of the local girls, something that Danny had previously seen, and it sort of set her off down this path of truly hating Christian, someone she eventually loved. So I liked that central idea that this story is essentially about a relationship between a man and a woman and the dangers and the effects of being in a destructive relationship that isn't just healthy. And I think that's sort of like the main backdrop to this movie. Um... That being said, I don't think this movie's going to be for everyone. It's a very, very slow burn. Um, two hours and 27 minutes is a long time for a movie that doesn't have uh, particularly what, we, what you would call action. Um, so I don't think it's going to be for everything. Aster does the same thing he does in Hereditary. There's a lot of slow, lingering shots. Um, there's... There's all these, uh, there's some, sh that, the, the shots linger longer than they should, you know, so if you're not a, a provocateur of, of film and art film, you're going to wonder why the heck we're staring at an empty field for 30 seconds while this slow opera music plays over it, or why we're looking at a snowy hill for 30 seconds when we could, when we're not really seeing anything. It's, it's a very artfully, purposefully done slow burn of a film, and for that reason, I think mainstream audiences are going to be a little bit confused, like, why does this movie have to be two hours and 27 minutes? And I, I kind of agree with that. I think it it is a bit of a slow burn. And I think it's probably a little bit too long. I'm not sure what we finally see happens when it does happen. It's shocking. It's disturbing. Um, but I'm not sure it's, it's enough of a payoff for the investment that we made. At least that's how I felt when I first started the movie. I, or when I, when I first left the movie. I think I liked it more after sitting with it for a while, because I think you really get a chance to sort of think about the journey you went on with these characters. Um, you're kind of like, they're all outsiders coming into this village. So you're kind of like an outsider along with them, and you're learning what's messed up or wrong about the village along with them. So I, I think if you step back and you think about the movie a little bit more, it's a little more friendly to the point of where you're, you're a little bit more willing to accept it. That being said, it, it was a little bit too slow for me. Um, I like Hereditary. There's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of the same sort of aspects of Hereditary. That was a slow burn as well. But I think the plot and the general story of that movie captured me more. Um, uh, the, the young guy, um, Alex Wolf, I think is his name, did a great job sort of capturing my attention. Tony Collette in Hereditary did a great job capturing my attention. I wasn't as drawn to the leads in 
this movie. And that's not to say that it was bad acting, but I just think they didn't do as much to carry what is ultimately a really slow story along. So um, a lot of people are loving this. A lot of people are going to go see it just for the shock value. It is shocking. It's very artfully done. There's wonderful shots of of this commune sort of eating in rhythm. There's long shots of these open fields with these strange buildings and mountains in the distance. There's some shots with fire. There's a shot uh, or a scene that takes place with, with two people, two old people sacrificing themselves by jumping off a cliff. Um, that is just shocking and and so just matter-of-fact in the way that Aster and the team made it happen. So it, it is an unsettling, beautiful film to look at, but it's probably a little bit too slow-moving for my liking. Um, and for that reason, I gave it a 6 out of 10. All right, now that we started off the show with a nice depressing, long slog of a horror film, let's move on to something that's a little bit more happy. I think uh, it's Toy Story 4 which of course is one of the most highly anticipated family films in recent memory. Um, you all know what Toy Story 4 is, and our lovable friends of Andy's room. The plot summary and I on IMDb. When a new toy called Forky joins Woody and the gang, a road trip alongside old and new friends reveals just how big the world can be for a toy. This is directed by Josh Cooley and stars an ensemble voice cast led by Tom Hanks and Tim Allen as Woody and Buzz Lightyear. But we also have Annie Potts, Tony Hale, Keegan-Michael Key, Madeline McGraw, Christian Hendricks, Jordan Peele, Keanu Reeves, Jay Hernandez, Joan Cusack, Bonnie Hunt. The list goes on and on. Lots of toys have been brought into this world over the course of three films. This is, of course, the fourth film in the Toy Story franchise that started way back in 1995 with Toy Story and continued in 1999 and 2010 with Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3, respectively. And let me tell you, I was very nervous coming into this. Um, Pixar, of course, is amazing. They make amazing films. They tell amazing stories. They have that magic touch of appealing to both kids and adults. Um, Toy Story 3 is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's one of the rare cases where I think the third one was actually the best movie in a trilogy up to that point. And for that reason, I was nervous about this because they ended Toy Story 3 so perfectly. It had, it had felt like Woody and Buzz and Rex and Ham and the Potato Heads and et cetera, et cetera, had run their course. And he had given his toys over to Bonnie. He went to college. They had a new home. They had run their course of doing their duty for Andy. And they were going to live this new life. So um, Toy Story 4, I think that, you know, you could argue would be in danger of being a pure money grab. Was there really more story left to tell? Did we really need to come back to these characters? Um, and I've had that question ever since. The trailers... Um, looked okay for this. They, I would say they didn't, weren't like something that I watched where I was like, oh my God, I can't wait for Toy Story 4. I can't wait to go back to this and see this. Um, so I was nervous. I didn't want them to screw it up, which Hollywood filmmakers, when they try and squeeze too much out of the orange, when they try and juice too much out of the lemon, sometimes it goes sour. So uh, that, was, that was the risk here with coming back to Toy Story 4, a beloved franchise. 
Of course, there's no chance this movie wasn't going to make millions of dollars. It's the, a beloved franchise. It's Pixar. Kids are really going to want to see this. So there were things I liked, and there were some things I disliked about this movie, which is kind of what I expected. The animation is incredible, of course. We're not surprised by that. It's Pixar. The world they create in Toy Story 4 um, through, on this road trip, the back country that we're traveling through. Uh, we go to an amusement park. There's an antique shop. Um, lots of cool animation. There's a carnival. So um, the animation's perfect. It's crisp, clear, amazing, colorful. Um, we knew that was going to be the case. The overarching theme of this movie, I think, is good because they they sort of found a new way to attack what it is to be a toy, what it means to be a toy. Um, and that's mainly exemplified through Forky, the new toy, um, who is a spork that Bonnie made in class. She's going to school for the first time and she's nervous and she's not fitting in. And then as soon as she makes this fork with arts and crafts supplies with the help of Woody, um, she starts feeling more comfortable in her own skin. She starts feeling more comfortable in the classroom. It's almost like an emotional support spork. Yeah, I know. It's, re it's really cute. But Forky, when he first comes to life, he has this existential crisis. He thinks he's garbage because he, well, is garbage. He was made from trash but brought to life as a toy. And he doesn't understand why he's alive. And he, he just wants to go to the trash can because he believes he's trash and not uh, not a toy, not, a, not something useful. Um, so... And that sort of provides the backdrop for how our other characters, namely Woody, sort of start to look at themselves with this place in the world. You know, throughout the first three movies, I think Woody's always been relatively comfortable with his place in Andy's life, especially as the favorite toy, with the exception of in the first one when Buzz shows up and he sort of loses his perch at the top, but of course that gets worked out. You know, the second one, he's trying to get back to Andy. Um, you know, the third one, he's... He, he's the only character that knows that Andy didn't try and give them away. So he's always been comfortable with his place in the world as the, the leader of the gang, the man, the sheriff of the room. He's Sheriff Woody, you know. He's the guy in charge. And through these things that Forky brings up and the things that Bo Peep, who we meet again in this movie, um, who has sort of become this independent, no-strings-attached sort of toy, Woody starts to question his place in the world. And I think throughout the course of this film... We get a lot of uh, commentary on, on the meaning of life, the toy's place in the world. There's a really strong message of experiences and dealing with new things, but also saying goodbye to the things we love. Um, and so, and we find out at the end of this that, um, you know, Woody is going to stay with Bo Peep. He's not going to go with Bonnie. His, his mission has changed. He wants to sort of help a bunch of different people. He wants to live his own life. And um, that's completely different. It's a 180 from what Woody has always felt like his purpose was. And because of that, when I first watched it, I was torn on the conclusion. You know, I, I sort of felt like, well, this is kind of pointless. Like, why, why did we do this? Because we're, the third one was so perfect the way it ended. We basically undo everything that was done in the third one when it comes to Woody. Um, his character does a complete 180, and it was kind of weird. I felt weird about it, um, but after thinking about it and thinking about the rest of the film, um, it makes sense that Woody would want to move on. 
Um, because some of the early scenes we see Bonnie, she doesn't really care about Woody anymore, even though Woody is the one putting Forky and making sure Forky doesn't jump in the trash or Forky gets lost. It's all because of Woody. Bonnie doesn't care about Woody. She cares about this fork that she made. Um, so Woody, you know, when you think about it, uh, he had kind of run its course. He ran his course with Andy and it looks like Bonnie's losing interest with him even sooner, um, as he keeps getting left in the closet, as they like to say. So the more I sat with it, the more I was okay with sort of the 180. Um, the humor's good in this, particularly with Ducky and Bunny, played by Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele. They bring some really good energy. They're basically there for the comic relief. They're like these stuffed plush toys that are prizes in the carnival. Um, they're, they're hilarious. Uh, they make me laugh a lot. <laughs> so I like the humor. Um, Pixar is known for being able to find that balance in the humor between the kids and the adults. We've talked about that many times on the podcast. So that was good. That being said, you, you kind of have to question the movie, why the movie was made. It, it, it is kind of a pointless sequel. Um, other than Woody's Big 180, which I just said I had mixed feelings about, but ultimately accept, the movie doesn't really need to exist. It's, it's a little bit of a pointless sequel. Um, and if we're being honest, you could call it a money grab, you know, um, because they know Toy Story is going to make a bunch of money. That being said, they didn't botch it, I wouldn't say. They didn't tarnish the legacy of it. So I guess I'm okay with it, because like I said, that was my biggest concern coming in. I was worried that they were going to tarnish the legacy of Toy Story. And I don't think they did that. So I'm happy about that. Another issue I kind of have with it is we have so many new characters in this. I already talked about uh, Bunny and, and Ducky, who I liked, but also uh, Duke Kaboom, I think is his name, played by Keanu Reeves. Um, we have this little Polly Pocket girl that hangs out with Bo Peep. Um, there's a lot of new characters. And we spend so much time with these new characters, we kind of neglect the old ones. Slink. Ham, Rex, um, you know, Bullseye, and, uh, you know, Calamity Jane. I don't know why I can't think of her name right now. Jessie. Um, they all kind of, and even Buzz, to a certain extent, kind of take a back seat in this movie. Um, they, we don't spend as much time with those characters. We don't get the funny one-liners. We kind of spend most of this movie with the new characters. Um, and because of that, I was, you know, a little bit disappointed because I, I like the characters that we've spent all these years with. We grew up, if you watched the first Toy Story in 1995, you know, you kind of grew up with these characters. So it's nice to see them. And this world has become so bloated and overstuffed. Um, I didn't even mention the original toys that were introduced in Toy Story 3 in Bonnie's room. There's so many characters. I think it might be a little bit overstuffed. We don't have time to spend with all the characters that we've been introduced to over the course of time. They do a decent job balancing it and trying to give them stuff to do, um, but I think some of the characters are a little bit wasted. But overall, Toy Story 4, it's going to be a movie that is going to be enjoyable fam for families to watch together. It has a great heart. Um, it, it isn't quite as emotionally impactful as the third one, I thought. Um, Woody sort of you know, being on his own is sort of left as more of an uplifting message, more so than he's being separated from his friends. You know, Buzz kind of says, she'll be okay, as in Bonnie. Buzz is going to step up in that leadership role. So I don't think it packs quite the gut punch that the third one does. But like I said, the third one is one of the most perfect animated films I've ever seen. As far as uh, Toy Story power rankings, 
Toy Story 3 is going to be my ultimate favorite. I gave that a 9. The original Toy Story, which sort of started this Pixar journey, um, I gave that an 8. Uh, Toy Story 2, which is the one with Al's Toy Barn, I gave that a 7. And that's where I'm at with this Toy Story 4. I'm going to give that a, this a 7 as well. Um, like I said, it's a good movie. It's, it's a decent follow-up. Maybe unnecessary, um, but they didn't screw it up. So that's what I'm most happy about. So again, 7 out of 10 for Toy Story 4. All right, last up on the trio of highly anticipated films, we're going to go from super toys to superheroes with Spider-Man Far From Home. Uh, this, of course, is the 23rd film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It follows the web-slinger Peter Parker, uh, the plot summary on IMDb. Following the events of Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man must step up to take on new threats in a world that has changed forever. This movie is directed by John Watts and stars Tom Holland as Peter Parker and Spider-Man. This film also features Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury, Jake Gyllenhaal as Quentin Beck and Mysterio, Marissa Tomei as May Parker, John Favreau as Happy Hogan, Zendaya as MJ, Jacob Batalon as Ned Leeds, Tony Revuluri as Flash Thompson, and so on and so forth. Also, J.B. Smooth is in this as Mr. Dell. He makes me laugh throughout the entire movie. Just a quick little side note there. Anyways, as I said, this is the uh, immediate Marvel Cinematic Universe follow-up to the mega-film Avengers Endgame, which premiered back in April. And I think one of the things that this movie does really, really well is it deals with the immediate fallout of what we saw in Avengers. If you've seen Avengers Endgame, you know that... Tony Stark dies. Iron Man is gone. You know that Captain America is, is gone. He aged and, and went back and lived his life, and he's gone. He's handed over the mantle to Falcon. You know that um, Scarlett Johansson's character sacrificed herself, and she's gone. We know that Vision, played by Paul Bettany, is, is no longer here. So the world is different. Um, there's this looming shadow in presence of Iron Man. Um... And, and I, I guess I was worried about that. I was worried that this movie wasn't going to be able to have high enough stakes or live up to the hype that Avengers Endgame had. Or it wasn't going to be able to deal with the fallout and sort of set us up for, you know, the next wave of films. Um, you know, I guess this is the last, technically the last film in Phase 3, but I really think it kind of is a fresh start for the MCU. Um, so, again... Amazing job sort of dealing with the fallout of the Avengers. One of the first scenes we see is two students in Peter Parker's high school on the announcements. And we actually see an in a cheesy student-made in-memoriam for the lost superheroes. Um, we, we find out that people have called the five-year period when half the Earth was destroyed by Thanos. They call it the blip. And that sort of had an impact on every facet of life, particularly in high school, where half the student body is five years older than they should be. But I, I think it works well because it it sort of lets us know what happened with the blip or what it was like on an everyday smaller scale basis. Obviously, when we were following the Avengers around, we know that the stakes were super high and we saw what happened when we lost all our superheroes. 
Well, we have to remember that there's a whole world of people within this MCU that half the un that lost half their universe. Every school lost half their kids. Families were torn in half and completely destroyed in some cases. You know, sports teams lost half their players. You know, it's it's minuscule stuff compared to what we saw with the Avengers, but the world changed, and now all these people are back. So I think it was good to sort of check in and show us what the effects have happened were on a surface level. This movie does a fantastic job of focusing on Spider-Man as a character. This movie's all about Spider-Man and sort of the struggle he has with stepping up in the looming shadow of Tony Stark. Of course, before Iron Man was killed, um, particularly in um, Captain America Civil War, in the first Spider-Man, Spider-Man Homecoming, and of course the two Avengers movies, Tony Stark is taking Peter Parker under his wing. He's the guy who's always talking to him. He's the guy who recruited him. He's the guy who had faith in him. He's the guy who yelled at him when he screwed up, when he was, uh, you know, fighting um, um, Vulture, played by Michael Keaton in the first one. Um, and we also find in this one that he's the person that Tony Stark handpicked. Happy Hogan has a line in this where he says, I don't think Tony would have done what he done, what he did, had he not known that Peter Parker, Spider-Man, was going to be here to watch over. So in this world without Captain America, without Iron Man, there has to be heroes that step up. The world has forever changed. And Peter Parker is used to just being the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man who's called in when he has to, you know, uh, when they need reinforcements. Well, he's not just the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man anymore. He is the guy, or at least one of the guys. And I think that this movie does a fantastic job of portraying his struggle with that and his struggle with having to be, you know, the guy. Um, so I, I really like that. Uh, the main villain in this is uh, Mysterio. Of course, when the, mo the movie, all the trailers will show you that Mysterio is a good guy, you know, working with Nick Fury and Peter Parker. But anyone who knows the comics, anyone who's seen the animated television series, knows that Mysterio is a villain. So I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say, even though I did give a spoiler warning, but I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that Mysterio does ultimately end up reveal himself as a bad guy, and the Eternals, who the trailers are trying to, uh, you know, set up as being the bad guys, are really just a big facade set up by Mysterio. So, through the first half of this movie, we're led to believe that Mysterio is a good guy, and I didn't really like it. I wasn't feeling Jake Gyllenhaal. It all seemed fake. It, his performance was terrible. It seemed rigid. Um, and maybe that was on purpose, because halfway through the movie, after he cons Peter Parker into giving him one of the tools that Tony Stark left him, after he's lost faith in being Spider-Man and just wants to chase MJ, um... Once Mysterio reveals his true intentions, Jake Gyllenhaal just lets loose. And he really grows into the role as this crazy, disgraced, you know, computer nerd who was fired by Tony Stark. And he now has this vendetta where he wants to be the next Iron Man. Um, so he ended up being an awesome villain. He was just insane, <laughs> which is awesome. I loved how just crazy he was. Um, and Mysterio is also grappling with the idea of replacing Tony Stark, but he's using it as sort of an insane excuse to kill millions of people and do things for his own selfish uh, reason. So Mysterio, if you know anything about him from the comics, you know he's uh, like this actor, stagehand, stuntman who's skilled in the art of illusions. And I really like the duality and the idea of Mysterio being the villain 
and having to uh, fight against Spider-Man. You know, the, the idea that Spider-Man's dealing with this is that he's an illusion of a superhero. He's not Iron Man. He's a fraud Tony Stark. He's not ready to take the responsibility. It's an, he's, he's tricking himself or making an illusion that he's a superhero. And actually fighting Mysterio, who in turn uses illusions and deception and trickery as sort of his main weapon, is some pretty cool symbolism, I think. Um, at the center of this film is the idea of who's going to be the new Iron Man. Um, and Peter, obviously, is who we want to be that guy. Spider-Man is not going to be Iron Man, but he's going to be the person that picks up the mantle of what Iron Man was, the symbol of hope for the people. And I think that, you know, throughout this film, Peter really grapples with that, and the fact that he's actually fighting someone who creates illusions is a really cool duality, cool symbolism. Um, there's a line at the end of, of, the, uh, of the film after he defeats Mysterio, and he asks Edith, the computer system that Tony Stark left him, you know, uh, what's going on? Why, why is this still happening? And the computer system says, quote, there are no illusions anymore, Peter. And I just love the symbolism of that because he's, he's done his purpose. He's defeated his first foe basically all by himself. And it's really sort of a step up for Peter Parker to become the new hope um, for everyone. So I think that that's really cool. There's a scene with Mysterio when he's sort of doing like a... It sort of reminded me if you've ever played... Uh, uh, the Batman games where when he'll get uh, put under using with a toxin by like the Scarecrow or the Joker will try and send him in some zany fun house. It sort of felt like that, but it was incredible, incredible computer animation where we've got like a, it's all fake, but spite, but Mysterio is using this illusion to take down who Spider-Man, who is physically much stronger than just this normal guy, Quentin Beck. But it's so well done. We get, you know, a hundred Spider-Mans attacking, you know, the, the, our hero Spider-Man. We get like a zombie Iron Man, Tony Stark, and the whole time Quentin Beck is yelling at him, calling Spider-Man a fraud, a lost little child who doesn't know where he is. And I think it's just so well done. It's, a, it's so artfully. It might be one of the more artfully fights, done fight scenes I've seen in the MCU. So I love that scene. Um, the, the effects are good overall. I love Zendaya as MJ. Um, she, she does, she has this sort of delivery where she's just so like matter of fact and kind of weird and awkward in her delivery and Peter Parker's the same way. So you get this sort of teenage love story thrown in there as well. Um, and I think Tom Holland and Zendaya have, have good chemistry in sort of pulling off the awkward teenage romance. Uh, God, I don't miss those days of having to try and talk to a girl when you have no idea of how to talk to a girl. So, um, I really liked this movie and I think that, you know, it did a fantastic job. It was a great follow-up uh, for the Avengers, but also does a good job to create excitement for the future of the MCU and what we're going to see next. Of course, we have a couple post-credit scenes, um, in this, both of which are pretty revealing and important stuff going on. Uh, the first of which, after the first credits, J. Jonah Jameson pops up, played by none other than J.K. Simmons, uh, who was perfectly cast as the Daily Bugle editor in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. Um, so he's popping up here in the MCU playing the same character. I believe it's the first time that a... Um, uh, an, at the MCU has reused an actor who previously played the character, so um, he's fantastic. 
um, as as J. Jonah Jameson. He completely nails his sort of Spider-Man, you know, his barking inflection. Um, and what we find out is he reveals Spider-Man's identity as Peter Parker. Um, and I think that's a really exciting sort of uh, thing that's going to, you know, have a lot of potential in a future Spider-Man film. Um, so now that Spider-Man's identity is out there, um, that's going to be very interesting Interesting to see how he deals with that and what the MCU does with that. And then after the whole credits, we find out that the Skrulls, who um, are we saw for the first time in Captain Marvel earlier this year, um, we find out that uh, the, the main one, played by Ben Mendelsohn, I can't remember his name, um, but he was one of the funniest parts of Captain Marvel. We find out that he's been impersonating Nick Fury in the whole movie, and that Nick Fury is actually on some Skrull warship out in space. And so while it seems, um, you know, like quite the shock, I think that this also opens up opportunities for the rest of the MCU because we can start asking questions like, well, how long has Nick Fury just been hanging out? Was it the real Nick Fury in, in Avengers? I think it was. I think we're just meant to believe that Nick Fury... Hasn't been has just been being impersonated throughout this film, um, but it's it, it opens up some opportunities, um, especially particularly with the shape shifting scrolls because um, who knows who they've been impersonating through the previous films. So I think this movie does a great job opening up possibilities for the MCU, and similarly to the end of Avengers Endgame, it it creates excitement for how we want to you know. Um, move forward with this obviously beloved universe that Marvel has created. So um, I really liked the movie. I think I liked it a little bit more than um, Far From Home, mostly because I ultimately liked Mysterio uh, more as a villain than Michael Keaton's Vulture once he went full crazy person. Uh, and I really liked how this picked up and dealt with the immediate impact of... Um, you know, what Thanos did, and how this also moves the plot forward for the rest of the MCU. Um, and so I gave it a 7, or, or sorry, excuse me, I gave it an 8 out of 10. I gave the last one a 7 out of 10. So Spider-Man Far From Home, solid follow-up. And that's the end of the MCU this year. So we had Captain Marvel, Avengers Endgame, and Spider-Man Far From Home. Um, well done, super fun movie. Um, Tom Holland is a great Spider-Man. And really, I'll watch anything with Spider-Man, so check it out. Anyways, that's going to do it for today's episode on July 17th, 2019. Uh, like I said, going solo is not something I love to do, but I think it works out okay, so hopefully you don't get too annoyed um, of listening to my voice. We'll keep trying to put out podcasts semi-regularly every two, three weeks is what I'm shooting for. I'm vigorously trying to get more, more guests or perhaps a solid co-host, and we're still not giving up on getting Evan on some podcasts if we can, you know... Find, get our tech together and get, get his cheap buns to, you know, buy a mic. So um, appreciate you listening. Like us on Facebook at Second Day Film Podcast. Like us on Instagram and follow us on Twitter. Check out the old episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, interact with us on Facebook. Been posting a lot of cool trailers and stuff on there. Um, and really appreciate everyone's support in the podcast so far through these first couple of years. So, again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you at the movies.